Thanks for listening to The Immaculate Deception. And thank you so much for all your messages and comments. We're really glad that the story has resonated with so many of you. This is a special bonus episode. My producer, Paul Smith, is going to interview me and we're going to talk about how we made the podcast series. Yeah, if you press record, you're, you're all set up on Reaper, right? Yeah, I'm all set up on Reaper and I am now recording. Let's start at the beginning. Jenny, you came to me with the story in the first place. Yeah. How did you first come across the Carbat case? It was in 2017, in spring 2017, when Tim Butters was trying to get the judge in the Netherlands to um, allow them to extract Carbat's DNA. And they went public for the first time about the case. And I'd read some news reports on The Guardian, on the BBC about it. And it just seemed like such a fascinating story. At that point, what had happened was uh, people like Joey had shown their photographs to the judge and compared it to photographs of a young Corbat and were making the case, you know, look at us, we look so similar, please can you allow us to have our DNA tested? And it felt very much like my kind of story. I really like looking at what initially might seem like very extreme stories, but that can teach us all something about how we live today. And and this this seemed to be that kind of thing. Um, so I followed it for a while, but I was quite heavily pregnant at that point with my second child. And I was also working on a proposal for a book which looks at the future of birth, food, sex and death. It looks at four inventions. And the birth section was about technology and assisted reproduction. So I kind of had it in my mind for a long time. I had my baby, I went on maternity leave and I was researching all sorts of things to do with technology and birth. And then I think you and I, we met up for a coffee when I was writing the birth section of my book. And the day we had coffee was the day that I'd written about Pancoast in Philadelphia and how the first ever artificial insemination was on a woman who'd been chloroformed and was unconscious. uh, And it had been using the sperm of Pancoast's best looking student. And I thought, this is just incredible. Like this entire industry is built on some quite dodgy practices. And so, yeah, we had that coffee, didn't we? And we had a chat and I, I told you about the Carbat case and the other we cases. Did. And it must be about a year you, ago. Yeah, it was about a year ago. And you said, this is a great idea for a podcast. Yeah, and here we are. You mentioned that you yourself were pregnant when you first came across this story. I mean, did that experience trigger something visceral in you? Very much so. I mean, I was always thinking about the mothers throughout all of this because, you know, when you're pregnant, you have something growing inside you, you're you're the host to something. And the idea that you might have something growing inside you that you didn't consent to, or that you might have been tricked to being host to that baby, um, it it seemed like such a kind of violation. And I think, you know, also any women who are listening to this will know that the things you have to go through as a woman, when you're having gynecological examinations, it's... um, it's really not pleasant. And the kind of treatment that these women will have had, they would have been so vulnerable, they wouldn't have been able to see what was going on. They're kind of lying back, trusting their doctors. So I was very much thinking about what it must be like to be a mother, which was why I was so keen all along to speak to a mother. I mean, of course, to tell this story, you have to speak to a mother. But for me, it was the it was the core of the story uh, about what happened to the women who were Carbat's patients. And we thought that would be so much easier 
than it turned out to be, right? Trying to find a mother was probably one of the biggest challenges we faced along the way. We tore our hair out about it, didn't we? I mean, we really did. And there was me thinking, you know, there are 60 old Carbat kids. That means there are 60 old mothers. We must be able to find one of them who, who would talk. And um, very few had, had even given interviews in the Dutch media. There'd been quite a lot of sensationalist coverage in the Dutch media. And I think a lot of the mothers felt uncomfortable having seen how the very few who had spoken out initially had been treated. So we started work on this properly around October time, I think. And yeah. for, for me, it feels like where the story has ended up for us now feels quite different from the story that we started off with. Was there a point in the process where you realised that this is a far more complex story than you first might have thought? Definitely, because so many of the characters we've spoken to, I mean, we've spoken to a lot of people who weren't Carbat's children, but are still his victims. They're victims of the terrible way that he ran his practice. People like Natalie, um, I think we never imagined uh, that we would be broadening the story out that far. For me, the big thing that I wasn't expecting and I'm really happy about is that I feel like we actually came to a proper conclusion that we really actively learned something through doing all of the reporting about the effect of shame and secrecy. And it's nice to be able to learn something and have something to take away from this story, uh, which is that if we are all prepared to be a bit more open about the problems that so many of us face with fertility and infertility, that situations like this are much less likely to arise. Yeah, that's really interesting. The idea of shame didn't really crop up that much in our initial conversations, did it? No, not at all. Not at all. And particularly part of the beauty of this story was that the children of Carbat were... Um, in their 30s, generally. And so they were old enough not just to speak for themselves, but to speak really well for themselves. You know, they're fully grown adults, really able to advocate for themselves. And so um, they weren't talking from a position of shame at all. They were just angry about what had happened to them and their, and their parents. And it was a kind of onion that we had to peel back to kind of work out why we weren't getting certain interviews or how certain situations could arise certainly the ones that we spoke to, the one thing that they all shared, apart from this feeling that they wish their parents had been more open with them, the one thing that they shared um, was that they were happy to have found each other. They were happy to have, um, you know, discovered this extended family and, and, and in discovering that family, being able to answer some questions about themselves. So it was lovely to, to see that warmth, although I know that not all Carbat children have wanted to be involved with their siblings so much, but yeah, their, their, their circumstances were very different. Their attitudes to Carl Bat were very different. And, um, and some of it was really unexpected. I mean, certainly when we met Marsha and Inga and had dinner with them, um, it was a lot of fun and they were laughing a lot. And I just wasn't expecting that at all. I think we were expecting much more gloom, weren't we? Well, we were, yeah, I think so. <laughs> or or um, I don't think we were expecting quite so many laughs. But they're both hilarious and, and, you know, there's so much love between them that, I mean, looking back, it's obvious that it would be that way. But at the time, I think when we were approaching people, we were saying, you know, we know this is a very sensitive story and, you know, we were, we're going to treat it intelligently. But, you know, they were more than happy to laugh and joke about it. Yeah, it's amazing. And on that, I think that was that was on our first trip to the Netherlands when we met Marsha and Inga and Joey. And on that same yeah. trip, we went to see the clinic. I think it's the very first thing you hear in yeah. episode one. It's us walking up to those gates. Do you want to talk a bit about what that was like, you know, to see this building in Barendrecht where so many of these stories that we've featured, they're all, they're all connected to this address? 
Well, we'd, we'd spoken to some of the people we interviewed on the phone before and the building kept coming up as it's being this very, very strange looking building that was once a farmhouse, but it's actually quite grand and it does look like a Disney cartoon and it's uh, quite kind of imposing and has this the stalk on the roof, which seems to be a kind of, I don't understand why they don't take it down now, particularly yeah, because it's quite a while. anymore. You and I had always felt that we needed to go and see this place because people kept talking about it or about how they used to cycle past it on the way to school or how their mothers had um, gone there in the middle of the night. And um, so when we went there, yeah, I felt... I felt like I was walking in the footsteps of all of those women. I think anyone who has had any fertility issues or had a baby, when you walk to those appointments where you're having a scan or you're going to something dramatic and life changing is going to happen to you, you feel such nerves and trepidation. And and that wasn't even taking into account the kind of shame and secrecy. I mean, we know that many of these women went in the middle of the night. Carbat certainly told them that they mustn't tell anyone they were having treatment. So I, I felt like I was walking in the footsteps of, of these incredibly anxious people who, who also wouldn't have wanted to be seen at all. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a strange experience. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. What are your thoughts on Rita Carbat now? Because you know, we... She's someone that we tried to contact throughout the series. It seems that she hasn't spoken to any media at all. She's kept very quiet during all of this. How implicated do you think she is in all this? It's very difficult to say. Rita Carbat did not inseminate Carbat's patients with Carbat's sperm. And it's easy to uh, blame her for a lot of this because there's because Carbat isn't here. And I think people are really desperate to find someone to blame. And a lot of that anger has been transferred onto Rita because she is the kind of living symbol of Carbat at the moment. She's the person who appears in court whenever they do have these hearings. I, I, you know, I don't want to speculate too much about what her involvement might be. She worked at the clinic with Carbat. She's in a lot of those um, documentaries with him that were shot in the, the 90s. Um, she, she was a constant presence beside him. It's clear that she was quite protective of him in, in the later years when, uh, certainly when Natalie went to Barendrecht to try and confront him and when Camille went. So she did kind of act as a gatekeeper to him. Mm. I think she could make her life a lot easier if she did say something. She doesn't have to talk to journalists, but if she... Uh, made a private statement uh, to the children of Carbat and to the people who have been affected by his actions saying that she regrets the heartache that they're feeling. I think a lot of them might take some comfort from that and also it might deflect some of the anger that's now just being directed at her. But there's a case that's ongoing and I'm sure that she is trying to protect herself and protect her children who are going to share in in Carbat's inheritance. So I'm sure um, she has her reasons for keeping quiet. Um, but it's a really tricky one. I think a lot of the people we spoke to who are part of the compensation case, obviously they would like to win some damages, but it seemed that their biggest desire is to have an apology that would actually go that would, that would actually go quite a long way for them. Yeah, I think it's about being seen and being allowed to be 
these are people who've spent their whole lives doubting themselves and being told to ignore those doubts who are finally justified in having those doubts. And uh, I think they want recognition of the fact that they've been wronged. It's part of how how they are now rebuilding their lives, knowing that they have been lied to. And I think if Rita publicly recognised that, or at least recognised it in their presence, um, that would mean a lot to them, given what they've been through. I think even for someone like Lydia, the mother we spoke to, who is not part of this case, I think what you said about being seen is really interesting with Lydia, Mm. because she told us when we interviewed her that the mothers like her are often forgotten in this case. I wonder if we could talk a bit more about kind of the aftermath of our interview with Lydia. I think in the episode itself, we documented our process of going to Benidorm quite clearly. Um, but, you know, in terms of treating treating Lydia's story with the sensitivity it really deserved, do you want to talk a bit about how we approached that? It's very difficult when you are doing interviews on such sensitive subjects and you really want the audience to get a sense of the gravity of of what has happened to somebody. You do need them to talk it through with you. And I was very conscious of not wanting to re-traumatise her by getting her to talk it through. But she was very um, insistent when we were there that it was a story that had to be told because there was just no attention being given to the mothers. So I was very careful when I was interviewing her to let her speak for herself as much as possible. And that, of course, was difficult with the language barrier. I know you and I spoke a lot in advance about whether or not we should be doing it in Dutch and getting a translator in there with us. And I think we felt that that would make it even more uncomfortable for her to have another stranger in the house for her to talk to. And given that Fred's English is good, we thought he could act as the translator. It's much better to hear it directly from her and have audiences be able to relate to her. But these were all very difficult decisions that we had to make at the time, you know, um, how how she could tell her story in the best way and in a way that didn't bring up so many incredibly upsetting things again in a way that she couldn't handle. And it was about it was about us being in the room with her and Fred, her husband, wasn't it? I mean, we we could intimate so much just from her body language of being sat beside her. Yes. Um, and she I mean, she's a very uh, warm, smiley character who in many ways, I think, is hiding behind her jolliness in many respects. And at the end of the interview, we all kind of exhaled. She grabbed my face. Do you remember? She cupped yeah. my face in her hands. and said thank you which was very moving and I I felt like I didn't know you know she didn't owe me any thanks at all we were just so grateful to her and I think part of the reason why she was prepared to speak out was because of her unique circumstances in that Mm. her husband who was uh, the legal father of her children isn't here anymore and she has been married for a long time to somebody completely unconnected from this you know who doesn't bear the guilt and the shame I think she was glad she did it in the end Although I know that she was worried when we were editing it as well about how it would go. And normally when you're a journalist and your interviewees want to know what's going to be in your piece before it goes out, you have to be careful because, of course, there are lots of people involved in the making of this. There's me, there's you, there's Peggy, our editor. There's lots of different people involved. And you never want to promise that something's going to be a certain way um, when you're not in control of all of it. But we did share with her a lot of the episode before it went out repeatedly. Yeah. We, we showed her a transcript of um, the parts of her interview that we were using. 
Yes. And we made, uh, there were certain details that she wanted taken out. We took them out and we were trying to be as sensitive as, as possible with her. But I know that it was still difficult for her, wasn't it, when it came out? I think it's always a shock to, you know, hear the response as well. I think you yes. know, the main thing for us was we really wanted to protect as much as we could her relationship with her children. To have found out this information that she did fairly recently, it's. Mm. I think there's a sense that they're all still trying to come to terms with a lot of it. Yeah, and I think that no mother would want her children to feel like she would rather they hadn't been born. And that wasn't what she was saying at all. Um, but of course, it's extremely sensitive. After the episode went out, Fred, her husband, sent me an email with some responses that she'd received from other women. Um, some were women who'd been to Carbat's clinic and had similar experiences. And I think they felt really, really grateful that she had spoken out in the way that she did. I think that was really mm. helpful for them. I think it's also really important to say that she really loves Peter, her son. She loves him. She loves him enormously and wants to continue having a healthy relationship with him. They're just trying to navigate how to do it in the light of this news, which is such a bombshell in their lives. One thing that we were trying to work out over the course of the series was why did Carbat do what he did? Yeah. And we heard so many different reasons from different people. For you, did you come to any kind of firm conclusion by the end of it? I think it's a combination of things. I think he definitely had a superiority complex. He felt that he knew better than his patients and he felt that he didn't have to abide by the rules that other doctors abide by or are supposed to abide by. You build up a picture of somebody who has a very high opinion of themselves. I think the fact that he only retired when he was forced to retire does suggest that there was something compelling him to continue doing it. And I certainly think he must have had delusions of grandeur to feel like he had so little responsibility to obey the rules or to inform his patients. We encountered so many other doctors who had done similar things. Do you think that kind of era is over or are there still ongoing cases like that, do you reckon? I think to an extent that era is almost definitely over in the respect that Nowadays, certainly in the UK, if you are a woman having a gynaecological examination or a gynaecological procedure by a male doctor, um, you're supposed to have a chaperone in the room. There's supposed to be somebody else. So it's certainly product of an era where doctors did these things behind closed doors with absolutely no oversight. And it's certainly an era where fertility doctors were always men and uh, they were always treated with a, a kind of deference and, and respect that maybe doesn't exist now, that we're more prepared to question doctors now. Although I think maybe not, I think fertility medicine is perhaps one of those areas where there is still so much trust of doctors because people have tried everything before they've gone to see the fertility doctor. So there's a, a kind of implicit hope that a doctor can kind of work magic and uh, you you want to feel like your doctor is on your side. But I do think things have changed. There's more oversight of doctors. We're more willing to question doctors. It feels like the culture of anonymity and secrecy that was that was so prevalent in Carbat's time is beginning to change now as well. I think assisted reproduction is becoming more and more normal and people are more prepared to talk about it. But that may to an extent come from the rise of same-sex parents, families um, of, of 
gay men and women and trans people where you can't keep it a secret from your kids how they were conceived. And so I think it's less taboo to go and, and get help. There are more visible people who are saying they've had help. I think male infertility is still very much taboo. I wrote an article for The Guardian two or three years ago, which looked at male infertility. And fertility is so much seen as a, a female issue and infertility is to do with women leaving it too late. But men have been suffering exactly the same decline in fertility as women have done. Over the past 50 years, sperm counts have dramatically reduced. And the men that I interviewed for that piece talked about the complete shame that they felt and were made to feel not just from people around them, but also the doctors treating them and the language of all of it, of, of, of firing blanks. It's so tied up, tied up in, um, in masculinity that while I think having help conceiving children isn't necessarily as taboo as it was, I think being infertile if you're a man is as taboo as ever and is as difficult as ever. So I do think there's still secrecy when it comes to using donor sperm, particularly among heterosexual couples. Jenny, that feels like a really nice note to end on. It's been so nice making the series with you and discussing it with you now as well. In all of this, I'm so incredibly grateful to the people who spoke to us, particularly because when you're making a podcast like this, you have to do really detailed interviews and they take a long time. And it's such personal information that people were telling us. And we sat with them for quite a long time. So I'm so grateful, not just that they shared their stories with us, but that they were prepared to do it in so much detail. And I hope that those interviews have sparked the conversations that those individuals so wanted them to spark among all the people listening to this. You can still email us at deception at something else.com. The Immaculate Deception is a Something Else production. It was written and presented by me, Jenny Kleeman. Paul Smith is the producer, with additional production from Arlie Adlington. Mixing and sound design comes from Will Short at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. Thank you to Magda Saron, Dan Cocker, Mark Rivers and Steve Ackerman. Ackerman.